So we are in our second week in a sermon series, a study through 1 Timothy, and I'm excited about this whole study, but if you remember last week, this is a letter from the Apostle Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy. Now, Timothy, he called him his son in the faith because he probably actually led him to Christ. But if he didn't lead him to Christ, he at least had a profound impact on his life, discipling him and investing in him and teaching him how to be a follower of Jesus. Timothy went on with him to several of his missionary journeys. But then, before Paul went off to his fourth missionary journey, he told Timothy to stay behind in Ephesus because the church at Ephesus really needed a strong pastor. And so he asked Timothy to stay. Timothy left the mission team to stay and be a pastor there in Ephesus. Uh, Some of you may know the book of Ephesians, which is really a letter from Paul to the church at Ephesus. And this is a letter to their pastor. But it's also written in a way that they intended for it to be shared, for the church to hear the information and to know it. But it's really written directly to Timothy. Today, we're going to see that the title of this sermon is Jesus Came to Save Sinners. Well, you may say, well, that seems pretty, pretty, you know, fundamental for a pastor, isn't it? You wouldn't think that Timothy necessarily had to be reminded of this, hopefully, especially being a pastor. But I think we're going to see in these verses that even pastors need to be reminded of the cornerstone and foundation of our faith. Remember, Paul just told Timothy in the first few verses of this chapter to watch out for false teachers in the church. He said some are going to come in and start preaching a different gospel. And it's going to sound really good at the beginning, but then it's going to start to waver just a little bit. Remember you talked about that wavering thing. And, and the word picture is if you're behind a car who's really out of alignment and you know, it goes faster and faster and gets more and more, you know, I guess my grandmother used the term whoppy jawed, you know, and it's just going like this until finally one of the wheels falls off. He just got through warning him all of this stuff, and so Paul's wanting to say, so Timothy, don't ever, don't ever sway from the gospel, and he's going to tell him what it is today. So let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, and we'll read through it, and then we'll come back and take it a few verses at a time. Here's what it says. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, Some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So we see some phrases and some some words in here that we don't generally uh, see. Again, he's giving uh, instruction to a pastor, but there are things that all of us should hear and know. And so let's go back and look at the first principle we see in this passage in the first few verses, which is this. Jesus offers salvation and purpose. Jesus offers salvation in purpose. Let's look back at verses 12 through 15. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, 
Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost." We see here that Paul thanks God that he has not only saved him through the mercy of Jesus Christ, but has also appointed him or called him into ministry. Now, there is a specific call uh, that we uh, understand in the New Testament for being an elder or pastor. And when you see the words uh, elder, pastor, shepherd, uh, all of those are for the same office uh, in the local church, which is a pastor. This is important because it's a key to staying with it and not become too discouraged. Uh, uh, Fellowship of Grace being a church plant 12 years ago. By the way, October 1st, we just celebrated our 12-year anniversary. So happy anniversary. Um, and uh, I work with other church planters and coaching them and, and actually assessing them for the North American Mission Board. And the first conversation I have with a church planter is, tell me about your calling. Because if you're choosing church planting as a career move, you're just, you need to have your head examined. I mean, you really do. This is not a career move. I mean, there's a thousand other things that you can choose as a career move that are better than church planter. Uh, Many of us who worked in the secular world had to take a considerable cut in pay to be a church planter. I took about a $30,000 cut in pay when uh, I started full-time at Fellowship of Grace from my cushy corporate job. And, uh, uh, you know, there's other things that have to happen. Here's the point is if you have this calling, uh, there's something inside you that says, I'm going to do this if it kills me. I'm going to do this uh, no matter what happens. Nobody's going to sway me. Nobody's going to move me. Even if nobody goes with me, I'm going to plant this church because God's put it in my heart to do it. But if you choose this as a career, uh, you're going to be discouraged. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to quit. And that's why 80% of church uh, plants uh, fail, one of the reasons why. So there is this specific call to being an elder, and and Paul's talking about uh, being called as an apostle and as a leader in the church, and he's talking about that with Timothy. But listen, while Paul is speaking specifically about the call to ministry for a pastor, the fact is God calls all of us to the ministry of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Bible talks about this ministry of reconciliation of which you are all ministers. In fact, I'd love to have our website reflect this understanding. So instead of having pictures of the pastors, it had pictures of the equippers, which are the pastors, and then a picture of all the ministers. And it'd be all of you guys. So all of you guys have your picture on the website as ministers, because that's the truth. You've all been called to this ministry of reconciliation to help reconcile others to Jesus Christ by sharing the gospel. But Paul's also here making a very staunch contrast to his previous life. This is not somebody else calling him names. He was calling himself. He's like, I was previously a blasphemer. I was previously a persecutor. In fact, he killed Christians. I was an insolent opponent, which means I was in your face. I was obnoxious. I was rude. I was mean. I was ugly. I was about the worst you could get. And now God has saved me. He also says that he did that, and he acted ignorantly or in an uneducated way, So God showed mercy on him. See, before he became a follower of Jesus, he was persecuting Christians. He was killing them. 
in this misguided belief that he was doing the right thing. Now, folks, it's, it's, it's important for us to understand. Sincerity counts for nothing. Did you hear that? Paul was sincere in persecuting Christians. He thought he was doing what God wanted. He thought he was doing the right thing. Just being sincere counts for nothing because he was sincerely wrong. So understanding the truth and believing the right thing is more important than how much you believe the right thing. So God showed mercy on him, gave him faith and love that only came through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Then in that passage, Paul assures an axiom. I don't know if you're familiar with that word axiom, but it's basically uh, uh, something that you say all the time. It's, it's a phrase or a, uh, something that you would say that people go, oh yeah, that's that guy. He always says that. I have, I have a few axioms that I use all the time. Like one of them is, uh, the right thing is always the right thing. Because as I talk to people and counsel people, they say, well, so I'll ask them, what do you think the right thing to do in this situation is? Well, I think this is the right thing, but people won't like that. Somebody's going to be really upset if I do that. It doesn't matter. The right thing is still the right thing. Well, I would do that right thing, but it could really cost me. Uh, people at work could really get upset if I do the right thing. It doesn't matter. The right thing is always the right thing. No matter what the circumstance, no matter what the situation, the right thing is always the right thing. If it's no longer the right thing, then it's the wrong thing. Another axiom that I use uh, quite frequently, and sometimes you'll hear me express it as my universal rule number one, which is uh, I can't control anybody on the planet but myself and barely that, right? And that's just a universal truth, and I say it all the time. And when people come to me and say, hey, pastor, will you help me? I, my, my husband drinks too much, and he's loud and mean and rude at home. Will, will you do something about him? I say, well, I can do something for you. I'm going to introduce you to rule number one. Universal rule number one is you can't control anybody on the planet but yourself, and barely that. I can't control your husband any more than you can, or vice versa. And so everybody has these axioms. What Paul is saying when he says this is a trustworthy and, and a statement and full, deserving of full acceptance, what he's kind of saying is, let me give you one of my axioms. Let me give you one of my statements. Here it is. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He's saying, let me just share the truth here it is, I told you to be careful about all these people that are going to come in and teach all these crazy ideas, Timothy. Here's the idea. Here's the idea. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He's saying out of all the sinners, I'm the biggest one. But Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Folks, that's what we call the gospel. It's the good news about Jesus. It's the truth that all of us are sinners. But God in his love that we've just sang about so wonderfully this morning, God in his incredible love sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay for our sins so that by faith and trust in what he did and what he did alone, we can be forgiven of our sins and have our eternity sealed with God because of what Jesus did for us if we'll just accept that gift. That's the gospel. And Paul's saying, hey, this is a trustworthy statement and it deserves full acceptance because it's the truth. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I and the foremost. If you don't have any axioms, put some axioms in your life. They're kind of cool. And this would be a good one to have. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am, and if you don't think you're the foremost, of whom I am one. Of whom I am one. But then Paul says that Jesus saves the worst sinners as an example of his saving grace. 
Look what he goes on to say about himself in verses 16 and 17. He says, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, the worst sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. After stating his axiom, Paul suggests that God is kind of showing off his mercy, kind of showing off his perfect patience by saving a guy like him. He's saying, hey, listen, here's the reason God saved me, really to just display his saving power. In other words, if God can save me, God can save anybody. If God can forgive my sins, he can forgive the sins of anybody. If God can love a guy like me who tortures and kills his followers, God can love anybody. Folks, we need to remember this. We need to remember this. Listen, I, I, I live in the real world too, okay? I, I know you probably have some people at work that are kind of hard to get along with. I, I understand that. I, I have the same problem here with Pastor Derek and Christopher. No, I don't at all. I don't at all. It's a joke. I understand that there's people in your neighborhood who probably set off fireworks at 11 o'clock, like that one guy. Ooh, I'm glad he didn't show up today as a visitor. Uh, and, uh, you know, I know there's people that just kind of irritate you. I know the holidays are coming, and some of you may even have to sit down at a Thanksgiving table or a Christmas table, a dinner table, with people in your extended family that you just tolerate. Okay? I get it. But what Paul's saying here is, folks, listen. Nobody is too far away for God's mercy. No one is too bad. No one is too sinful. No one is too far gone. Nobody is too doubtful. Nobody is too ignorant. Nobody is too unbelieving. God's mercy and grace can reach anyone because he reached a guy like me. Now, I wouldn't say the same thing about myself being the foremost sinner. I haven't persecuted or killed any Christians recently. But I have a pretty good self-awareness. I'm pretty clear on the list of sins that I've committed through my lifetime. It's a really long list. Some really bad things. I'm just so thankful that we don't uh, uh, go back to high school for pastors and find out everything they've ever done. But folks, I'm also pretty understanding that there's people in this room who have lists like mine. In fact, pretty much all of you do. And if you don't think you do, probably lying needs to get higher on the list. We're all sinners. We were all at one point really far from God's mercy and grace. And God saved people like us. Listen, I know if God can save a, a man like me and do something useful with his life, he can save anybody. He can save anybody. And so Paul's wanting to get through to Timothy. Timothy, stay with the gospel. Stay on the gospel. Don't ever begin to waver. Because if it saved a guy like me, we don't need to add to it. We don't need to subtract from it. We don't need to find another way. This is the way. If it can save me, it can save anybody. And so let's stick to what we know to be true. Then he continues on and he says, listen, fight the good fight according to your calling. Fight the good fight according to your calling. Look at verses 18 and 19. 
He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Here Paul charges Timothy to fulfill the calling that he has. When he says the prophecies made about him, he says about your calling. Fulfill your calling to be an elder pastor. Fulfill your calling because you're in a war, man. You're in a fight. Good and evil are fighting all around us. If we could see the spiritual world and what was going on in it around us, it would, it would freak us out. It would blow our minds. I think that's why God's protected us by making it uh, unseen. But there is a war going on around us, and Paul's wanting to remind Timothy, Timothy, you know why we got to stay on the gospel? You know we got to stay on this path and never waver from it? Because there's a war going on all around us. And you need to fight the good fight, man. You need to fight the good fight. Don't ever forget that you're in a spiritual battle. He says, now's not the time to rest and say, hey, God saved me from my sins. Now I can just kind of sit back and enjoy the ride. No, because the battle's still going on. Satan may have lost my eternal soul, but he is still uh, fighting to destroy my testimony, fighting to destroy my heart, fighting to destroy my family, fighting to destroy everything, my ministry, trying to destroy everything in my life, just like he's trying to do yours. When God saved our lives through his son Jesus, he handed us a sword to continue fighting in the battle, folks. Paul suggests two really important things that will help uh, Timothy stay grounded and fighting the good fight well. He says, man, hang on to your faith and a good conscience. Now guess where a good conscience comes from? Doing right. Doing right. You don't have a good conscience if you're doing things that you know are wrong and displeasing to God. So you can have a good conscience by doing right and living right. Now listen, even though you might have a different call to ministry, you may, um, very few people in this room are called to be pastors but you're still in a fight. You're still in a spiritual battle, a spiritual war. You still need to hold fast to your faith, that faith that you gave your life to when God forgave your sins. And you need to hang on to a good conscience that comes from right living. And listen, I get that we're not perfect at that. Okay, we, Nobody in this room thinks that once you become a Christian, you become a perfect person. But we do think that the Holy Spirit in us makes us more capable of doing the right thing, makes us more able to do the right thing. And so we get in the fight and we try to hang on to our faith, the truth about the gospel, and a good conscience that comes from righteous living. Paul says, Timothy, man, hang on to these things. Hang on to them. Hang on to them. Because if not, here's what will happen to you. If you don't hang on to him tightly, here's what will happen to you. And Paul says, hand over to Satan those who have shipwrecked their faith. Hand over to Satan those who have shipwrecked their faith. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, here's what it says. By rejecting this, or what he was just talking about, holding on to your faith and holding on to a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus, and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. 
Now, those are not phrases that we use a lot. Those are not words that we use a lot. Let's look and see what they mean here and what he's, what he's trying to say here. Here are two guys that Paul names by name as those who have shipwrecked their own faith. They have gone astray. They began to waver, and now they've gone wavering so much that they've just gone off the tracks. He names them by name because they're probably uh, not church members, their previous leaders, probably pastor elders. Their previous elders that have gone off the tracks. That's why Paul is encouraging Timothy not to be like them. He's saying, listen, Timothy, hang on to these two things like, like your life depends on it because guess what? Your life depends on it. Your ministry depends on it. What you get out of life depends on it. At one point, these men were saying and doing the right things. They were seen as leaders. They were given the responsibility of leadership. Uh, They were seen as pastor elders in the church who were chosen by other pastor elders. So basically, the leaders saw these men, made them leaders because they saw them uh, uh, with that potential and probably even already leading at some level. But at some point, they rejected their faith in Jesus or could no longer have a clear conscience because of intentional sin or both. And Paul says, these men, I have given them over to Satan. Now, what does that mean? Now, Paul doesn't control anybody's eternity. He doesn't control their eternal uh, standing before God. What he's saying is, I'm, I'm giving them over to Satan. What he's really talking about is church discipline. As described in Matthew chapter 18. Now, we're not going to go back and read through all that today. We don't have time for that. But there's a clear process. There's a clear process of church discipline. In other words, when somebody's doing the wrong thing or they're teaching the wrong thing, where they're either teaching heresy that's gotten a little off the track of the gospel, or when they're living in in obvious and outward sin, there's a process. And that process is if you see it or you know it, you go talk to them one-on-one. By the way, if you come to me and say, hey, do you know what so-and-so's doing? The first words out of my mouth every single time is going to be, have you talked to them? And then they say, well, no, I'm just coming to tattle on you, uh, to, to you. I'm going to say, I got nothing to do with it till you go talk to them. Now, if you go talk to them and they say, hey, I'm not listening to you. You're a jerk. I'm going to do what I want. Then you come back to me or somebody else in the church and you take two or three witnesses with you. That's the process. And you try to convince them to either stop teaching heresy or stop living outward obvious sin. And if that doesn't convince them, then we bring it before the whole church. And if they refuse to repent or stop teaching heresy, we simply vote them out. We say, you're no longer a member of Fellowship of Grace. We're going to treat you like an unbeliever because you're acting like an unbeliever. Now, I know some of you are going, holy cow, do we really do that? I mean, in this day and age, we really do that kind of stuff? Yes, we do. In fact, we've done the process probably four or five times in our 12-year history. You're like, well, I don't remember voting somebody out. Right, because we never get to that place. Somebody goes and talks to them one-on-one. They refuse. We go as two or three and go talk to them and try to convince them to come back to, to, to doing the right thing or teaching the right thing. They refuse. We share with them, listen, we, we have no choice. You're putting us in a bad spot. 
we're going to have to bring this up at the next business meeting and actually vote you out because you refuse to do the right thing. And guess what they do? Every single time, they run screaming into the woods. Now, folks, if you're a member of Fellowship of Grace, let me just tell you, that's the most foolish thing that a person can do. Think about this analogy. A 10-year-old kid gets caught playing with matches. And their parents say, oh, Johnny, don't do that. That's bad. You can't do that. Burn the house down. Okay, Mom and Dad. Then he gets caught doing it again and again and again. And finally, Mom and Dad say, you're grounded. Then he does it again. And they spank little 10-year-old Johnny, and they take his stuff away, and he, he gets disciplined. And then he decides, well, you know what? I think the thing for me to do is to just run away. That will solve my problem. What? That's the dumbest thing a 10-year-old can do is to run away because they don't like loving, godly discipline. But, folks, adults do that sometimes when they're faced with discipline in our church. There's a man sitting in this room who, and he gave me permission to share this, who three years ago made some really horrible, bad choices in his marriage. We talked to him, said, man, you got to stop, stop doing this. He didn't want to hear it. And instead of ever being voted, he just, he just said, I'm done. I'm leaving the church. I'm gone. Now, we didn't say, whoosh, whoo, glad, glad that guy's gone. That could have been really tricky. We would have had to maneuver. No, we went to his apartment. We knocked on his door. We surprised him. We said, listen, dude, man, don't do this. We're begging you. We're begging you, don't run into the woods by yourself. Come back to the church. Let us help you. Let us love you. Let us encourage you. Nope, I don't want you to come back anymore. You're out of here. Goodbye. And you know what we did? We prayed for him, but we turned him over to Satan. And what that really means is, listen, you want to go do that? You want to live like that? You want to make those kind of decisions as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus? You want to do those things? Okay, man. I'm going to let you do it and experience what it's like to be out there by yourself. Now, a year later, he calls me, and he said, hey, these were his exact words. He says, hey, man, I'm at a really, really dark spot. I am in a really dark place. I have lost my family. I have lost my friends. I have lost my church. I have lost, I have lost my job. I have lost everything because of these choices I made. I don't know how to get back. Is there any way back? I said, yeah, there's a process to get back. And if you want to commit to that process, we will care for you. We will love you. We will encourage you uh, in all kinds of ways to get back. But you have to commit to the process. You can't just run into the woods anymore. He made that commitment. He started meeting with one of our pastors weekly for months and months and months. He met with another one of our pastors at least monthly. We had conversations. We had uh, uh, all kinds of things. He had big responsibilities in the church, and he didn't have those responsibilities anymore. He had to come and just serve. Just come and serve. Let's see your heart. Let's see if you're really repentant. He did all those things. He did every single thing he was asked to do. And now he and his ex-wife are dating, and probably on a path 
to maybe restoring their marriage. Now, folks, that's just messy. That's just messy. When you turn somebody over to Satan because they refuse to repent and do the right thing, that's, I mean, there's just a lot of churches that'll go, man, that's just too complicated. That's just too messy. That's just, that's just, I, I, we don't want to be a part of that. But this is what God's word says to do. And as pastors, Pastor John, Pastor Derek, me, we're required to follow God's word. Now, some people run off into the woods screaming and we never hear from them again. And we pray for them, we love them, but they can't be a part of our church and teach heresy and lead others astray. They can't be a part of God's church and be involved in outward open sin and embrace it. Now, listen, that's, I want to make sure you understand, that's not the same as somebody does something and you go, listen, man, you gotta, you gotta, we, we love you, we want you to stop doing this because it's messing up your life. And they go, I know, I'm trying to help. Help me, pray for me, encourage me. You know, I need your help. Okay, fine. There's no, there's no pushing people out there. But I'll tell you, it took me many years to forgive one of my previous churches. Because 30-some years ago, when my first wife and I uh, broke up, and it was a lot of, you know, I'm going to go through all my dirt with you, but, but a lot of it was because I was very young. I was a musician. I was traveling all over the country, and I was incredibly uh, uh, irresponsible with money. Didn't pay bills on time. I was too busy traveling all over and doing concerts, and, and some months I'd have a lot of money, some months I wouldn't have any money, and just up and down all over the place. She got totally tired of that, sick and tired of it, and left me. And probably five to seven people from my church came to me afterwards and they said, man, we saw that coming. We saw that coming. Man, we, we knew you were messing up big time. We saw her getting frustrated with you. We saw her getting angry. We saw her getting bitter towards you. And you just didn't change it. And I'm like, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you help me? Not one person in that church loved me enough to say, hey, Michael, we see you making some big mistakes here, and it's going to cost you your marriage if you don't stop. Man, I, I would have, I would have, I think, I think I was smart enough, even then, <laughs> to have gone, what? What are you talking about? Tell me. Help me. You see, folks, that's why membership is so important. That's why it's critical to be a member of a local church. Because if you just go to this church for a few weeks and then that church for a few weeks and this church for a few weeks and this church for a few weeks and you just kind of uh, tour churches, you're never under the umbrella of a church's accountability or, to be honest, protection. Protection from yourself. Protection from the world. That's why it's really important to become a member of a local church. And if you've been coming here for quite a while and you haven't become a member yet, let's sit down and talk about that. You, you need to do that. And if, you, and if this isn't the right church for you, I'll, I'll, I'll give you some good churches to go visit. But you need to be under the umbrella of the authority and accountability of a local church because that's where people who love you will say, hey, man, you're making a big mistake here. You're messing up. And before you get off the tracks and you go off into the woods for a year and you call me and say you're in a really, really dark place, I want to help you. That's what the local church does for each other. I think it's also really critical to understand 
Uh, by the way, uh, when you look back at this verse, it's important to understand these are not unbelievers who are ignorant of the truth about Jesus, okay? Listen, uh, unbelievers should act like unbelievers, all right? We don't go around to people who haven't yet put their faith and trust in Jesus and say, well, you're doing this wrong, or you're doing this wrong. We, we, don't, we don't do any of that kind of stuff. There's no accountability for anybody who's an unbeliever. But once you decide to be a follower of Jesus, which these two obviously were, clearly were, there becomes some accountability. But I want you to look carefully at the goal of church discipline. Because church discipline isn't just to kick people out who aren't doing what we think they should do. Look carefully. He says, uh, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their own faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme, that they would repent. We do these things so people will repent, get themselves right with God. This, this story of this man in our church is like, I mean, it just worked out so perfectly. And you know why? Because we just did what God's word says. It works perfectly when you just do what he says. We said, okay, man, you want to do your thing? Go do your thing. And guess what? A year later, he calls and says, how do I get back? I don't want to, I, I hate this. I don't like where I'm at. I know, I know I've, I've dealt with enough people and I know the code word when somebody says to me, I'm in a really, really dark place and I'm scared. I know what that means. And by loving him, by, by, by uh, exercising church discipline with him at the right time in the right way, and by still loving him, even a year later, and giving him a path back, he's now found his way back, folks. That's how the church should operate. The fact is, any of us could lose our minds over something. None of us are, are so good that we couldn't possibly make some really bad choices and bad mistakes. But I love, love, love being in a loving, caring church that is not called fellowship of criticism or fellowship of judgment, but fellowship of grace. We offer grace to people. The goal of this, of turning them over to Satan, is not to judge them or criticize them, but it's to help them repent and be restored to the body. Restored to the body. So, what is it that Paul is trying to say to Timothy in these verses? He's saying, look, we're in a spiritual battle. And Jesus either wants to save you now, if you're here today and you, don't, you haven't crossed that line of faith yet. Jesus either wants to save you now from your sins or he's already saved you. You need to find your purpose in his ministry. Even the ministry of reconciliation. And keep fighting the good fight, folks. Never let up. Never let up. Never let up. No one, no one, no one is too far away for God to save by his mercy and his patience. So don't say, I'm not going to share the gospel with this person because they'll never come to Jesus. Really? Paul did. I don't think you know anybody who's out there persecuting and killing Christians. If you do, let me know. I'll go help you share the gospel with them. Okay. And then he says, listen, participate in practice and participate church discipline, even up to the point of supporting you all supporting the elders and pastors and excommunicating someone if necessary to see a change in them, to see them repent and be restored to our body. Folks, these are important things. This is not a social club. 
Fellowship of Grace is not a, a, a YMCA plus or minus, whatever you, way you look at it, okay? It's not a social club. It's not a, it's not a group to join. It's a, it's a body of Christ here. It's, it's the, the expression of Jesus on the earth today. And we need to act like it and be like it as much as we possibly can and encourage each other and help each other and continue to grow the kingdom by sharing the gospel of people that we might even think are too far away. But folks, they aren't. If anybody was too far away, I have been someone who could be too far away. And I know what my life would be, knowing my personality, my tendencies, I know that if I didn't know Jesus, man, would my life be a wreck. Talk about a shipwreck, wow. Big shipwreck. But God in his sovereignty, in his love and his mercy and his grace, have saved us, have given us the opportunity to know him through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's be the church, not just come to church. I don't want you to ever come to the church. This is not the church. You are the church. I don't want us to come to church. I want us to be the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your salvation, for your infinite mercy and grace and patience toward us. Father, thank you for saving us, those of us who have put our faith and trust in you. Thank you for saving us in spite of ourselves. God, help us to never forget how lost we were without you. For some of us, that's been a very long time, but help us to never, ever get over the gospel. I read in this passage that Paul never got over the gospel and how impactful it was. Lord, help us to never get over just the truth that the God of the universe loves us enough to send his son to die for us. Help that to ring in our ears, to be in our minds and our hearts on a constant basis. Father, help us as we live this life to live it in a way that honors and glorifies you. But God, we thank you for putting us in a local church where we can have the protection from false teachers, the protection from false accusations, but we also have the accountability that keeps us on the path before we make life-altering, critical, bad decisions and bad sinful ways in our lives. God, help us to be the church to one another. Help us to do that in love and grace and never out of criticism or judgment. Father, we are just so thankful for your patience with us. Help us to be patient with one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.